All right, well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn in that Bible to Mark chapter 6. Um, and we're going to study Mark chapter 6. And, and really, I should have said 1 through, 20, 1 through 30. I wrote 1 through 29, but it's really 1 through 30. We need that, that last verse in there to make some sense of some things. And so we're going to study Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 30. And the title of the sermon is, as you can see in the bulletin, is The Way of Rejection. And so what we're going to see is that Christ, our Messiah, was chosen by God. Christ, our Messiah, was chosen by God to be rejected by men in order to save his people. Christ, our Messiah, was chosen by God to be rejected by men in order to save his people. And what we're going to see in this account, what we're going to see in this narrative, is that Jesus... In, in the message of the kingdom, are going to be rejected in increasingly large circles, like a, like a rock getting thrown into a, a pond. The concentric circles are going to get larger. We're going to see Jesus uh, being rejected by his family in Nazareth. Then we're going to see his apostles sent out into the towns, and there is the reality of their rejection as they go throughout the towns doing ministry. And then we're going to see King Herod, the Tetrarch, ultimately killed John the Baptist in kind of a government, kingdom-level rejection of Jesus and his followers. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we're going to get to work. Here now, God's holy and inspired and life-giving word from Mark chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. 
And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, uh, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, first and foremost, we acknowledge that in our sin we've rejected you. We've rejected your rule and reign. We've rejected your goodness and grace over and over again. Father, forgive us. We know that in Christ we have a forgiveness for an abundance of our sin and rejection. But it is the rejection from his people, the nation of Israel, that he went to the cross that we might be forgiven. So, Father, help us to understand this complex, nuanced story of of Jesus coming to his family, coming to his own, but being rejected because a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would make the reading and preaching of your word today effective, that you would convince and convert sinners, that you would bring comfort and challenge to your people. Spirit, without your activity, this is nothing but an, an exercise of saying empty words. So we need you to be present. We need you to work, Spirit, so that your word might not return void. We ask that you would do all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his holy and powerful name. Amen. Several years ago, Lindsay and I were in my hometown uh, visiting my family, and we went to one of our favorite spots in my hometown on a date one night. And as we approached this place, Municipal Brew Works in Hamilton, Ohio, we, we started, I started realizing that I knew a lot of the people there. And it wasn't unusual for me to go to my hometown and see people that I knew, um, but this was odd. And, and, it, and we found out over the course of the night that we had accidentally stumbled on my 10-year high school reunion uh, without knowing. Um, I didn't get an invite. I didn't know it was happening, but we were there nonetheless. And it was fun to catch up with people. It was fun to see what people were doing, who had had kids and, and whatnot. But it was really, really fun to tell people that my job professionally was a Christian pastor, that I was doing professional Christian ministry because I had garnered for myself um, quite a reputation in high school as probably the most unlikely candidate for doing that. Um, Let the reader understand when I say that I had a reputation for wild living in high school. And um, not only did I have a reputation for how I acted and how I behaved and how I was very publicly known, but I also had a reputation 
for being very, very adamant that not only was Christianity untrue, that the Bible was a bunch of hogwash and bunk, but that Christianity in itself was morally repugnant, that it was dangerous for society, that it was repressive and backwards, and if we wanted to have a good, modern, progressive society, we had to get rid of Christianity altogether. And so it was incredibly shocking to my classmates that I had entered into this line of work because of my rejection of the faith, both by way of my profession and my behavior. But what we see, I think, in our own lives and over the course of human history and in the Bible, it is a pattern of of people because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, to reject and rebel against the rule and reign of God. And because of that, because our first parents did that, all of us by, are born and inherit that sin nature. So all of us are born rejecting and resisting and rebelling against our God. But God, in his grace and his love and in his kindness, chose Jesus, elected Jesus, prepared Jesus to go to a people who would reject him, That would lead to our salvation. And so the first thing that I want to look at in this text is how Jesus is rejected by his own, by his family. Jesus returns in verse 1 of chapter 6 to his hometown, Nazareth, north of Galilee. He had been doing a lot of ministry down by the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus has traveled north into the hill country uh, to go back to his family. And this is the family if you remember from, from Mark chapter 3, they had great concerns about Jesus' mental well-being. Uh, they, they were, as he was doing ministry, they approached him and said, he's out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. And so this is the family that Jesus is going back to. And he immediately goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, which, even though his family thought he was crazy, uh, shows a degree of goodwill and of acceptance into Jesus as kind of an itinerant preaching rabbi. And he goes in and he preaches on, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and the people were astonished. Now, if you recall from Mark chapter 1, when he was teaching in the synagogue, the people were astonished there. But they were astonished because he taught as one that had authority, not like the scribes. And so this was a new teaching, a teaching with authority. And they were astonished by the, the quality of the teaching because it came from such a, an authoritative source. But here in his hometown synagogue, uh, his home church, his, his hometown church, they're astonished not because of his authority, not because of his, his teaching ability. They're astonished because who is this? Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Where does he get the, the chutzpah and the wisdom to say this stuff? Don't we know him? This is Mary's son. His brothers are here. His sisters are here. His family's here. We grew up with this guy. Who does he think he is? Why does he think he has the authority and wisdom to spout off this stuff and to claim these mighty deeds? Jesus came to those who knew him, but they did not truly know him. Kids, I got a quick question for you. Who is somebody in your life that you listen to? God. God? Very good. All right. What about you, Adam? Jesus, God, and mom in that order. Okay. Very good. Um, Anybody else? Kids, who are you listening to? Yes. Your preacher dad. Oh, that's, that's very good. Yeah, Caleb. 
Oh my gosh, guys, you got to say somebody else now. It can't just be me. <laughs> or yes, Simone. You teachers. Now, I'm going to ask you really quick, kids. If you have teachers or maybe a babysitter and your parents, who are you more likely to listen to first? Mom. Your mom? Okay, your mom? Okay, that's fine. That is not where I thought it was going to go because it is typically, we've learned in our experience that our children tend to listen better the first time to babysitters and to, to other people besides us because there's a level of familiarity that you have with mom and dad. So you love mom and dad, you respect mom and dad, but they're not always the first people you listen to. And that's okay, that's, that's normal. That's actually what we see here in Mark chapter 6, that Jesus goes back to his family, goes back to his hometown with people who knew him really, really well, and they couldn't believe that he was who he said he was. They couldn't believe that he was this guy doing all these great things, the incarnate Son of God, because they were too familiar with him. It's like the old saying, close but no cigar, right? They got so close to him, they knew him so well for 30 years, but now they didn't quite get him as Messiah because they were too close. And so, but this, just, this wasn't just a, a dislike. This wasn't just a... I don't know about this guy. And you see in verse 3, you see in verse 3 that they took offense. They, they took offense to Jesus and his teaching. Um, and this is the Greek word skandalizo. It's where we get our English word scandal. They were scandalized by Jesus and his teaching. They were scandalized by his messianic claims. They were scandalized and took offense to his, his claims of miraculous working. They could not accept the reality, and they were greatly perturbed. And so Jesus then in verse 4 says, yeah, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, except among his family. And so Jesus marvels at their astonishment. Jesus marvels at their unbelief. And he couldn't do any mighty work except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. Now, in that There are two bits of irony, and I love irony. The first bit of irony is that laying hands on a sick person and healing them is nothing more than a miracle and should garner incredible astonishment, not of the uppityness of the teacher, but as the reality of that it happened. And so that's completely ironic that they they didn't accept Jesus on the basis of that alone. But the other thing, the other wonderful bit of irony is that in their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, in their taking offense to Jesus' teaching and messianic claims, that does nothing short than authenticate the prophetic claims of Jesus as the Messiah. If you look in Isaiah 53, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah writes, He was despised and rejected by men. And so Jesus going to his family, being rejected by his family, is nothing short of a, of a bit of prophetic fulfillment, as it were. That he was one that was going to be rejected. He was one chosen by God to do this, the incarnate Son of God, and he had to be rejected, starting with his family. Chosen by God to be rejected by men for the sake of us, his people. Now, there's a couple application points that I want to flesh out from here a little bit. And one is this, that belief in Christ as the Messiah is much more than data input. 
Belief in Christ as the Messiah is much more than rational data input, but it's rather a matter of divine appointment. They saw Jesus heal people. Other people in the Gospels see Jesus heal people. They see him do miracles, and they don't believe. That's why it's not true to say that seeing is believing, because we see over and over again in the Gospels that people see Jesus do things and they don't believe. And so here we have to wrestle with the fact that as believers, when we want to share our faith, giving people correct data does not a Christian make. And so parents, we talked about covenant kids in the prayer. Parents, catechize your kids. Read the Bible to your kids. Teach your kids the Bible stories. But understand that that doesn't make them, that doesn't guarantee them to be a Christian. Adults, read the Bible. Read theology. Read church history if you really want something to nerd out on. Read blogs. Listen to podcasts. Do all of that. Gather all that data, all that you can. But understand that data does not a Christian make, but rather it is divine appointment and a movement of the Spirit. And so here's the, the challenge that we have, and here's the, one of the, the wrestling points we have to have. It's possible to know so much. It's possible to be so close, to be so familiar, to have grown up in the church your whole life, and yet to be outside the family of God. And so as believers, we're called to examine ourselves. We're called to search ourselves. As the psalmist writes, search me, God, know my heart in Psalm 139. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We are called to search ourselves, to examine ourselves, because it is so possible to be close but to not be in all the way. And so God in His grace and His mercy gives us His Word that examines us, gives us a family, gives us a covenant family that Zach and Taylor can join publicly, gives us a family where we can have people that love us, that hold us accountable, that that call out our blind spots, but more than that, to encourage us to fan and to flame the faith that we have. And so that All of that data that you gather from your catechism, from your Bible, from your theology, from your reading, the Spirit can use that to form you, to encourage you, and to shape you. But just understand that as you go through your life, it's not the data input, it's the divine appointment of the Spirit. So I'll end with this. J.C. Ryle is an Anglican bishop from the 19th century, and he says this, "...apt men are to undervalue things which with they are familiar." So let's just not be familiar with Jesus and his claims. Let's not just be familiar. Let's be submitted to them that they might form us more to the image of Jesus. So Jesus is rejected by his family. But it doesn't stop there. It says in the second half of verse 6, then he went out among the villages teaching. And then in verse 7, he called the twelve And he began to send them out two by two. He's commissioning them as apostles. And so when Jesus first invited the disciples back in chapter 1, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And up to this point, up to this point, they've been following Jesus. They've been observing Jesus. They've been watching Jesus. And now it's time for them to shoot their shot. 
They are getting sent out. They have been commissioned. They're going to go out and they are going to co-labor with Jesus and be active in the ministry. And so here they are. They're given a framework. They're given an expectation to how the ministry is going to look and how it's going to go. Don't, don't take a staff. You know, don't take any bread, no bag, no money. Wear sandals and don't take two tunics. What Jesus is setting them up for is you need to be ruthlessly, ruthlessly dependent on me and the gospel of the kingdom. You are not going to depend on yourselves. You are not going to depend on your own material possessions. You're going to go from town to town, from house to house, and those who receive you, you're going to take their hospitality. And that was the expectation, that they were going to depend on the goodness and the grace of the kingdom going forth so that they might be received as Christ has been received. But also, there's an expectation that they're going to be rejected just as Christ was rejected. Kids, I'm going to ask you another question. What's something like a, like a, like a, like a toy, like an item that you have that you cannot live without? Something that's so important to you, you have to have it always. You can't, like if you don't have it, you get upset. Or you, get, you, you want something. You want it. Yes, Adam. Your, your kazoo. Okay, that's, a, that's a good. I like music. Yes, Piper. Your Kindle. Yeah. Anybody else? Other kids? All right. Yes. Okay, Becky. Oh, they're blankets. Yes, I I have a blanket too that I like, although it gets stolen from me quite regularly. Uh, yes, Caleb. Oh, your mom. That, oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, your parents are are great. But see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's really easy for us. It's really easy for us as people to look for. Um, security in our possessions, right? Our blankets, our, our toys like our kazoos, things that give us pleasure like our Kindles that we can read all kinds of stuff on. We look to that stuff for our security, but Jesus here in his commissioning of the apostles is sending his apostles out to go and do his work with the possibility of rejection. Their security is dependent upon the kingdom kindness and the, the accepting of Jesus himself But, 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 in a fallen world, in a world full of sin, in a world full of thistles and thorns, rejection is part of the reality. We are going to be rejected by people. We are going to, people are going to reject Jesus. And so that is something that we have to wrestle with. And so Jesus says, stay with those who receive you. Your security and provision are going to be from them. But understand that not everybody's going to receive you. And if they don't, leave and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, here's the thing. Scholars note that shaking the dust off the feet is not just simply a, well, I got to get on the road again, got to get this dust off my feet before I start walking. Scholars note that there was a, a pattern in a history of rabbis who had left the Holy Land who had gone into Gentile territory. And when they would come back to the Holy Land, they would shake the Gentile dust off their feet so as to not contaminate the holy ground, the holy land of Israel. And so what Jesus is saying here to his apostles, those who are rejecting you are rejecting me. And to them, 
Shake off the dust of your feet and consider them as Gentiles. Consider them as those who have not just rejected you, but have rejected me and my messianic claims, the claims of my kingdom. They are, though they might be ethnically Jewish, though they might be have the history and the heritage of God's covenant people of Israel, they are to be as pagan Gentiles if they reject me, the Messiah. A servant is not greater than his master. If they're going to reject Jesus, they're going to reject the ones whom Jesus sent. And this, I would have you note, is not a glitch in the plan. It's not a hiccup in the plan. This isn't an aberration in the story. This is part and parcel of God's redemptive purposes. It says, the psalmist writes in Psalm 118, what we read from our call to worship this morning, that the stone... Uh, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the Apostle Peter later interprets this for us as Jesus. The revelation of Jesus and his message is the cornerstone of God's kingdom, of, of God's redemptive work in Christ. And so what happens? What happens then is to be a part of God's kingdom is to believe in Jesus, to build your life and belief upon that cornerstone that God chose. Even though he was rejected by men, if we want to be a part of God's kingdom, we have to be loyal to him, trust in him above all things, material and otherwise. Ruthlessly trust in him. So this rejection that the apostles faced, again, shows the story in the pattern that Jesus, our Messiah, had to be rejected by men, even though he was chosen by God, to save his people and bring them into his kingdom, those who believe. So the application for this is that although we are not apostles, none of us are apostles, we do have the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, we have an obligation and an opportunity as God's people to go and wherever we are in our work, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, to share the goodness and the grace of God with those around us. And two things we can expect out of that. Like the apostles, we should expect big and miraculous things. We should expect people who are the most unlikely candidates to respond to the gospel because, again, the gospel, responding to the gospel is not a matter of data input but of divine appointment. So we should expect to see God do things that human achievement could not otherwise accomplish. We should expect to see miraculous conversions happen. But we should also expect rejection. We should also expect the disappointment of people that we know and love, people in our families, that have rejected the call of the gospel. And so this being called into a way of rejection is to, to follow in the footsteps of our Messiah, to follow in his, his lead of proclaiming the kingdom, to, to be received by some, but to be rejected by others. And it's going to be full of glory and joy and astonishing things, but it's going to be filled with pain and suffering. And people we love are going to walk away from the faith People we love are going to reject the call of Jesus. And that's what we should expect as followers of the way. In particular, I would encourage adults who have adult children, especially those who have walked away, don't give up. 
don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't stop talking. Don't stop sharing the gospel because it's not up to you. And this is the glorious good news of following Jesus, that when he calls us into this way of following him, it's not up to us to build the kingdom. He does that in and through us by divine appointment, by movement of the Spirit. So be, know that our God is faithful parents of adult children who have walked away. Our God is faithful to his covenant promises. And God makes good on that. And so do not grow weary in sharing the goodness and the grace and the love of Christ with your children who have walked away. We're going to expect to see amazing things, but we can expect rejection as well. And it's not just, it's not just going to be this rejection on an interpersonal level. It's not just going to be a child walked away or a coworker said, no, thank you, don't talk to me about Jesus. There's a rejection on a larger kingdom level scale. And that's where we see point three, this, this kingly rejection. At the end of the, the section, Mark chapter 30, or Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 30, Mark records that the return of the apostles, they come back and they report back to Jesus the things that they've done and the things that they've seen. And Allah, the pattern of Mark, in between the sending and the return of the apostles, there's this meat of a sandwich where it shows the story of King Herod and John the Baptist. And one of the things that Mark is doing is he's highlighting for us. He's drawing attention to kind of a a zoomed-in look at what suffering and rejection does when you're talking about government leaders and the kingdom of God clashing with the kingdom of this world. And so we see... We see Herod Antipas. This is not the same Herod the Great from Mark 2. This is Herod, Ant- this is Herod Antipas, uh, Herod the Great's son of the Tetrarch. He ruled one-fourth of Herod's kingdom, and so he's called Tetrarch. And we see in this that John the Baptist has been imprisoned by Herod because Herod got tired of John telling him that his adulterous relationship with his brother's wife was wrong. And Herod was tired of hearing this opposition to his sinful patterns, um, and so he put John in prison. And so here we see the ruler of the region, the representative of the kingdom of the world, in direct conflict, in direct opposition of the kingdom of God. We know from Leviticus uh, 18, this is probably what... Uh, John the Baptist was saying to to Herod that it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife as your lover. And so we see the kingdom of God get rejected and repressed by the kingdom of the world. And so when Herod was affronted with this prophetic announcement of God's kingdom, he he was troubled, he was perplexed, he was consternated. So he puts John in prison to silence the message. But he didn't kill him like his lover wanted. He didn't kill him because he feared John as a righteous and holy man. So even though he hated what John was saying, he was still so intrigued and perplexed by him, so he didn't kill him all the way. But even though we see the cowardice and and the the weakness of Herod on display, we're also going to see the corrupt power of the kingdom of this world because even though he couldn't get rid of this prophetic message in the kingdom of God, he couldn't reject it all the way unto the grave. His lover Herodias devises a plot. And so on the day when Herod is celebrating 
either his actual birthday or, or, or his ascension to the, the throne, the, the ruler position that he has in front of military commanders, high-ranking officials, and important influential people. Herodias has her daughter come in. And we already know that there's a level of perversion in Herod's life. And so Herodias' daughter dances for Herod in the court in a way that absolutely captivates him. And in that moment, in his sin, he's captivated by what he sees. And he promises to this young girl, I will give you whatever you ask for up to half my kingdom. And she goes to her wicked and cruel mother and says, what should I ask? And it's the head of John the Baptist. And so Herod is struck and perplexed and saddened because he reveres John the Baptist. He, he, he is intrigued by John the Baptist, but he promised in front of all these powerful, rich, influential members of the kingdom of this world, of his court, that he would give her whatever she asks. And so she asks for John's head. He can't back out of his promise, and so he regretfully has to do what she says, and he executes John the Baptist, and it bothers him. So in his sin, in his pride, in his envy, in his lust, in his suppression of the truth, he agrees to kill John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, harbinger of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is a, be- a, a, a twisted but great picture of Romans 1 on display. This is a, a wonderful picture, a twisted picture of the suppression of truth of God. This is a wonderful picture of what happens when in your sin, choosing sin, you reject those who God sends, you reject the message of God and His kingdom, and it leads to ungodliness and despair. You see, Herod accepted the pressures and principles of his own court and his own kingdom over and against the kingdom of God, and it leads to the death of John the Baptist, the one whom Jesus said, There's no greater prophet than him. And so we have to look at an application here. And again, just like I said earlier, data gathering and data points does not a Christian make. High estimation and high respect for Jesus and his teachings and the the church and the history of the church does neither a Christian make as well. And so... Like we talked about last week, intellectual curiosity is not sufficient for discipleship in the kingdom. High estimation for Jesus and the message of his teaching is not enough to tear away the idols of our, of our hearts and our eyes that are going to be so powerfully working in our lives. If we want to be ripped away from the kingdoms of this world. We can't simply have a high estimation for Jesus. We have to have a profoundly deep spiritual experience of a regenerated heart that says, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. We need to be repentant, not just respectful of Jesus. And so, in that, this is a ter- another terrifying thought that one can have as high an estimation of Christianity and of the church and be as intellectually intrigued and respectful of the teachings of Jesus, but yet in the final analysis be no worse off than the worst of sinners that you can imagine. 
So you can be as put together and as cultured and as nuanced and as high a member of society as you want. But if you reject the, the truth of Jesus, if you reject Jesus as the Messiah, you're, the cornerstone has been rejected by men. You're outside the kingdom. You're outside the family. And so let us not just be respectful of the claims of Jesus. Let's be repentant people over and over and over again. We cannot simply repent once. When the Lord Jesus Christ said repent, he bid that all of life might be repentance. And when we repent, when we repent of our sin, that's us acknowledging that in our sin we've rejected God. But in God's grace, he allows us to come back and return to him over and over and over again because he is a good and gracious king. You see, we see in in this text a pattern. The family of Christ rejects him. The followers of Christ gets rejected. And then the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, gets rejected unto death. And what we see here is that there's this wonderful biblical pattern of our God in Christ was chosen before the foundation of the world to be the Messiah, to be rejected by men to save his people. But here's the thing. We need more than a pattern. We need more than a pattern in God's word to find our salvation. We need somebody to pay the price. And here's the thing. John the Baptist, in his forerunning in his proclamation of the kingdom, once coming after me, whom I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal. John the Baptist also paves the way for the death of Christ because here he is dragged before the court, dragged before the leader, and publicly put on trial, as it were, publicly declared guilty and is publicly executed. Brothers and sisters, what is that not but a pattern and a prefiguring and a preparation for the ultimate death the ultimate rejection of God's man, our Lord Jesus. But in God's grace and God's love and God's mercy, that death, that rejection of Christ isn't just a pattern. That's the price. That's the blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That is the price that our rejection and our rebellion and our constant leaving God. That's the price that had to be paid so that we might be forgiven, that we might have the opportunity to repent. And so if you are struggling with sin, if you go, I'm tired of the world rejecting me. I just want to reject God as well and go my own way. No, hear this. The Lord Jesus was chosen by God, was rejected for you went to the cross for you, shed his blood so that your sins might be paid for, atoned for, forgiven, so that you might be accepted and brought into the family, brought into the family to be forgiven so that you don't have to run away. You can call him Abba, Father, and find home. In my father's house, there are many, many rooms, and in Christ you can find a place You do not have to be away. You see, here's the thing about Isaiah 53 and that that prophetic pattern. It says later in 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 the chapter 53 that this was the will of God to crush him for the sake of his people. 
This was the will of God to crush him. This wasn't a fluke in the plan. This wasn't a byproduct of just being in a sinful world. This was God's plan all along. The will of God was to crush Jesus for you so that we might be forgiven. And so because he's done that, he calls us to follow in that way as disciples, dying to yourselves, rejecting the call, the siren song of the world, so that we might follow a Messiah who was rejected for us, so that we might live life everlasting in the kingdom of God for all eternity. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you that you sent your Son, that Jesus was chosen by you to be rejected by men so that we might be forgiveness for the abundance of our sins. Father, help us to live lives that reject you less and less every day. Help us to live lives that are repentant and know that we've been restored to you because of the grace of our Lord Jesus that he purchased for us on the cross that we might be forgiven. Father, We confess that we grow weary ourselves of being rejected by the world. Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts fully assured by faith that you are worth it, that we would turn our eyes to you, Jesus, that the things of this world would grow strangely dim because you have paid the entire price for us to be forgiven so that we can treasure you above all things and live in a world that's increasingly hostile towards you and your kingdom. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come quickly, make all things new. We love you and we pray this in your holy and powerful name. Amen.